Um, I'd like to thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to be here today to deliver two papers, one on the New Testament theology of Adam and his significance, and the other one on some systematic theological implications of Adam in the New Testament. And I want to say, with regard to our previous uh, lecture, Dr. Green, that was a fantastic presentation. I was uh, instructed, I was encouraged, um, I was helped in a number of ways by that lecture, and it really got the conference off moving in a useful direction, and I just hope to catch some of that momentum and try to keep us moving in a direction that will prove useful and encouraging to us and will help us better understand the theological and redemptive historical significance of the concrete, historical, formed from the dust Adam that we find in the pages of Scripture. Um, I also wanted to express appreciation for the students that I taught this past week. It was a wonderful time of encouragement, rigorous and demanding and taxing, but it was a wonderful time. Um, my topic today, at least this afternoon in the first session, is Adam and New Testament theology, the significance of the historical Adam in New Testament. And my approach is going to be theologically continuous with what Dr. Green did, but I'm going to focus our discussion a little bit more narrowly and not achieve the full-orbed theology of the New Testament as Dr. Green did in the Old Testament. It's a breathtaking panorama that we got this morning. I'm going to focus on 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 42 through 49, for reasons that will become evident as we move through the text. And I'm going to draw some conclusions that will situate us for my second lecture, where I move into some additional thoughts about the historical Adam and interact with some contemporary hermeneutical proposals that deny his historicity. So 1 Corinthians 15, um, read in context, I won't read from 35 following, but um, the focus of our text will be verses 42 through 49, which I want to read to you. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is of heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, in order to orient us and find a point of contact for our theological understanding as we approach this text, I want to review something that I trust to be fairly remedial in terms of our theological understanding. And it's the 
um, fourfold estate in which humanity operates. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 9, sections 2 through 5, posits a fourfold estate for human nature, for humanity. The estate of innocency, the estate of sin and misery, the estate of grace, and the estate of glory. A fourfold estate. Man in the estate of innocency, remember, was created in the image of God, in true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, and given dominion over the creatures, but was under probation, was called to obedience to the Lord, and that obedience could terminate in one or two directions. If disobedience was expressed, advancement would be made to the estate of sin and misery, to eternal death. If obedience was rendered, perfect and personal obedience under that special relation into which God had entered with Adam and Eve prior to the fall, then there would have been advancement beyond probation. Advancement from mutable righteousness, mutable holiness, and life that could be lost to confirmed righteousness, confirmed holiness, and a life that could not be taken away. Man would pass in obedience from the estate of innocency into the estate of glory. And of course, when man fell into sin... As we looked at earlier this morning, he fell into the estate of sin and misery. He's under the guilt and the power of sin, subject to the threatened eternal wrath of God and condemnation and needs a savior, a mediator who can obey where the first Adam failed to obey in order that he might what? Advance his people redemptively now to the estate of glory. In the estate of glory, Westminster Larger Catechism 90 puts it this way, that among other things, the church will be raised bodily in Christ, openly acknowledged and acquitted, will delight in the immediate vision and fruition of, Of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and will enter into a holy realm that descends, as it were, out of heaven, into a new heavens and new earth, never again to sin, fall, or die, permanently beyond probation and in possession of eschatological life. Now, notice this in terms of historic Reformed Orthodoxy that prior to the fall, Only two estates come into view. Prior to the fall, prior to the entrance of sin into the world through the disobedience of our first parents, through the disobedience of Adam as federal head, there was only the estate of innocency and the promised estate of glory. Everything depended upon the obedience or lack thereof rendered by Adam as the federal head of the human race. Adam was to traverse the estate of innocency in route to glory. 
in which his mortality would be clothed with immortality. His provisional righteousness and holiness confirmed forever. And there would be no estate of sin and misery and no estate of redemption. No estate of grace. Now, the reason I bring that up is it is with this basic theological context in view and with sensitivity to it that I want to approach the topic of the historical Adam in New Testament theology. And I could approach the topic in one of two ways. I could survey key texts that appeal to the historical Adam either directly or indirectly, and stitch together some basic motifs that illumine his significance. Or I can expound one text that gets us to the deepest theological significance of Adam in any New Testament text. I've chosen the latter option. And I believe that text is found in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 45 for a few reasons. Let me give them to you in advance before we look at the text first. First Corinthians 15, 45. This is the only slide you get. I don't use PowerPoint. <laughs> I apologize in advance. I could use a, a board behind me, but this is it. So <laughs> enjoy. Um, <laughs> just telling you, that's it. First uh, Corinthians 15, 45 in context lays bare the foundational role that the historical Adam plays with regard to Paul's eschatology, Paul's theology of redemption that culminates in the resurrected Christ. Adam stands as the first historical figure who represents an entire age, an entire eon, an entire order of things, what our standards call the estate of innocency. But that order of creation, that estate of innocency, is designed to consummate in a higher order, what the Westminster Standards call the estate of glory. And Paul's language to communicate this is the natural corresponds to the estate of innocency and the spiritual that corresponds to the estate of glory. Everything depends on understanding the difference between Adam, who became a living being, that is, possessed a natural body, and Christ, as raised, who becomes life-giving spirit, possessing a spiritual body. Second, Paul draws explicit and theologically primitive contrasts this is key between the bodily mode of Adam's existence prior to the fall and the bodily mode of the existence of Jesus as resurrected from the dead. And his argument is that what is achieved in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the eschatological realization of what was intended for obedient Adam under the covenant of works. So, for instance, and thirdly, Paul generalizes the distinction between the two kinds of bodies in verse 45. And in 46 begins to speak of broader orders of existence that Adam represents and Christ represents. 
In the Pauline axiom, verse 46, it is not the spiritual, the estate of glory that is first, but the natural, the estate of innocency, and then the spiritual. That is the logic. And Paul generalizes that distinction in verses 47, where Adam is the earthly man, the man of the dust. Christ is the heavenly man, the one raised up into heaven. And the point is this, and we'll explore this, that for each, the bodily mode of existence corresponds with the realm that each inhabits. Adam, as earthly of the earth, had a bodily mode of existence that fit his status in a less than glorified state. Christ, as heavenly man, has a bodily mode of existence that fits his status as glorified and ascended. And fourth, and just rounding out a summary, Paul specifically predicates that as believers have borne the image of the first man, Adam, so they will bear the image of the last man, Christ, 49. This connection implies that the image borne by believers in the age to come, the image of the resurrected Son of God, is predicated upon their previously bearing the image of the earthly man, Adam. It is not possible to bear the image of the heavenly without first bearing the image of the earthly. All of this implies this key premise, that Adam's existence as the first man is taken with the same degree of realism and his bodily mode of existence affirmed just as strongly as the bodily mode of existence of Jesus Christ, the last Adam. Believers who have borne the image of the earthly will bear the image of the heavenly in bodily resurrection. No historical Adam no protological image, no historical Adam, no image of the earthly. And by extension, no possibility for bearing the image of the heavenly. These features are inextricably bound to one another and logically and theologically correlated with one another so that Adam provides the historical prototype that Christ both fulfills and surpasses as resurrected. Let us then take a foray into the text and let me walk you through the text now, having looked at some basic summarizing comments. In the context leading up to verse 42, Paul makes it clear that different bodies have distinguishing characteristics and different degrees of glory. Look back in verses 39 through, through 41. Not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. 
But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For star differs from star in glory. Now notice this. Paul says that different bodies are distinguished by discriminating features. Different bodies have discriminating features. And the earthly bodies are of one glory. The heavenly is another. The sun, moon, and stars differ in effulgence and glory. And star differs from star in its radiance and glory. And this becomes the background for what Paul says in verse 42. So likewise, the resurrection of the Soma. And listen, just as a, as a guiding statement, Soma is this kind of Soma throughout the argument. A wrap your knuckles up against it, material body. So that, that's a guiding uh, point. Now, in 42 through 44a, Paul's comparisons and contrasts are, ca- are crafted in terms of tight antithetical parallelisms. You can see in our uh, slide up above or in your Bibles that are before you. What is sown in death, the dead body, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. And now, summing up the first three prepositional phrases, perishable, dishonorable, and weak, Paul uses this phrase. It is sown a natural body. A natural body is that which has been subjected to perishability, dishonor, and weakness as a consequence of sin. Hence, it is what? Sown into the ground. And by the way, um, Dr. Green would do a much better job of, of reminding us of this. This is at least in part what is in view in Genesis 3.19. Of dust you were formed and then to what? To dust you returned. Body is sown back to the ground from which it was taken. And the spiritual body, still now physical body, physical soma, is antithetically contrasted in that it is raised imperishable, it is raised in glory, it is raised in power. Paul will clarify this later in verses 50 through 52 and say it is raised immortal, clothed in immortality, clothed in the power of an everlasting mode of life. And that distinction is obvious and commonsensical to us as we read through the text. Dead bodies planted in the ground perish in dishonor and weakness and return to dust. Resurrected bodies of which Jesus Christ right now is the only instance are raised in imperishable glory and power. And so you have one of the most basic contrasts anywhere in Paul's theology between the spiritual body raised And the natural body planted in the ground. Easy and straightforward. In 44b, we have a twist and a turn in the argument. 
In verse 44b, the focus widens now and is no longer the dead body of the believer in comparison to the resurrected body of Christ. But it now becomes the pre-fall body of Adam in comparison to the resurrection body of Christ. And this is quite an unexpected move as you're reading through this particular section. Paul now argues that it is not simply the dead body of the believer that is a natural body, but so likewise the pre-fall body of Adam. How do we know that? Well, we know it in two ways. First, verse 44b ends the list of contrasts that are found in 42 through 44a and begins a new argument. It has an if-then structure. If there is a natural body, then there is a spiritual. In the Greek, soma is elliptical. It's just to be supplied. It's not in the text. If there is a natural body, then there is a spiritual body. But it's in verse 45 where Paul offers proof for this argument begun in 44b that he appeals to the nature of Adam's existence before the fall. And he quotes Genesis 2-7. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The point is this. In support of the argument that if there is a natural body, then there is a spiritual body, Paul now appeals to Genesis 2-7 and the first Adam's creation. Where God formed him from the dust of the ground, breathed the breath of life into him, and created him as an image bearer in covenant union with God. Paul refers to the constitutive activity of the Holy Spirit implicitly in the Genesis narrative, remember, where God breathes, as it were, life into Adam and he becomes a living being. I would remind you, as an aside, of John Murray's outstanding treatment of Genesis 2-7 in his collected writings, where he speaks of the way that the constituting of Adam as human and image bearing coincides with the act of divine inbreathing. It's a unique, punctiliar, spirit originated act of God that constitutes Adam as a living being. Now, regardless of what more we can say, and we can say more. Question and answer time. We must say at least this much. Adam's bodily mode of existence is presented here as historically real, yet less than glorified. Historically real, yet less than glorified. His bodily mode of existence, while free from sin is not the highest mode attainable for human beings. To find that, you must look to what dawns in the resurrection of Christ, the sole possessor of the spiritual body now, 
The body transformed by the spirit into a glorious and imperishable mode of existence. To put it most basically and leave out a question that we can pursue later. Adam was created very good in a less than glorified eschatological estate. Very good but not yet glorified. Adam was not good in the consummate sense of the term. He was not yet clothed in imperishable glory and power. He had life, but he was not yet clothed clothed with eternal life. The life that he had was transient and mutable. And not yet the highest form of life that exists for creatures. Andrew Lincoln, in a work entitled Paradise Now and Not Yet, fairly old book now, makes this helpful observation. He says, just as Paul's use of sarks, flesh, can involve a neutral or ethically negative sense, so his use of psuchikos, here, natural, seems to be equally flexible. Only if this is the case can justice be done to the argument of 44b. What does he mean by that? Here's what he means. Catch this. I know it's after lunch and the carrot cake was delicious, so let's push hard here. I didn't eat all I could have. I didn't want to fall asleep in my own lecture. But let's catch this. First, now here, the natural body the somasukikon, the natural body with reference to Adam, denotes Adam in all his created goodness as well as his temporality and transitoriness. It refers to the first human in his weakness and frailty over against the imperishable glory and power that dawns In the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Good. Very good. But not yet glorified. We need to make a further comment about this if-then statement. The protasis and apotasis. The if-then statement in verse 45. If there is a natural body and in a state of innocency. Then there is a spiritual body and a state of glory. This is absolutely critical to grasp. Gerhardus Voss puts it this way in the Pauline Eschatology. Page 169. The apostle was intent on showing that in the plan of God from the outset, provision was made for a higher kind of body. The abnormal body of sin and the eschatological body are not so logically correlated that the one can be postulated from the other. But the world of creation and the world to come are thus correlated. The one pointing forward to the other. If there is a natural body a less than glorified mode of existence for Adam, then implicit in that condition is a higher mode of existence that he attains through obedience under the covenant of works or life or creation, depending on which nomenclature we want to, what what aspect of that arrangement we want to accent. 
Andrew Lincoln in Paradise Now and Not Yet says this. Paul's argument depends on a typological exegesis which sees the first Adam as prefiguring the last and consequently the last natural body as pointing to the spiritual or the first natural body pointing to the spiritual so that from the beginning of creation, a different kind of body had been in view. You see, if there is a natural, then there is a spiritual, natural body, spiritual body. This is the eschatology of creation. It is the eschatology of what Reformed dogmaticians call the covenant of works. This is what drives the eschatology of the covenant. Now, notice what Paul does in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-six. He offers what I consider to be an axiom for understanding his resurrection theology viewed now more broadly than merely bodies. Notice now the language of man and body drops off. You don't have a reference to Adam as man. You don't have a reference to Soma body. He says this, but not literally Not first the spiritual, pardon me, yeah, not first the spiritual, but the natural, then the spiritual. Some of the translations, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and then the spiritual. See, the spiritual order is what? The imperishable, glorious and powerful order that follows after the natural order has run its course. 45 focuses on bodies. 46 focuses on eons or atmospheres or the context in terms of which those bodies are framed. Paul's focus in verse 46 shifts from an anthropological concern focused on the body to a cosmological concern. His focus in a word is eonic. It is atmospheric. The natural stands for the entire order of existence that corresponds to the pre-fall order, the order of creation prior to the fall. The spiritual stands for the entire order of existence that corresponds to the redemptive order, the order of resurrection life in the spirit. The natural stands for the first creation. The spiritual stands for redemptive recreation, thought of now broadly as two eras, two ages or two eons. And what needs to be accented here is that the spirit is centrally active, just as the spirit hovered over the primal waters of creation and formed Adam from the dust of the ground. So likewise, the spirit is the one raising Christ from the dead, Christ becoming functionally identified with the spirit, the possessor and the conveyor of resurrection life in the spirit. And Adam and Christ represent entire orders of existence now. How do we know that? Look at verse 47. 
Paul has in mind orders, that's clear, not just by the generalizing trend in 46, but by his reference to the first Adam, now first man, haprotos anthropos, the first man who is what? Of the earth, earthly, of the dust, et geis koikos. In contrast to the second man, Christ, who is ex or anew, of heaven, who is now identified with heaven. Adam's fundamental mode of existence corresponded to the earthly, but Christ's corresponds to the heavenly. And Adam's being of the earth, a man of dust, is a cosmic perspective now that frames his natural body. His natural body operates as it is of the earth and situated in an earthly arena. The earthly and the bodily. Let me put it this way. The earthly and the natural mutually interpret one another. The natural operates in the earthly. The earthly is the arena for the natural. So that we could put it this way. What is true of his created person is true of his created environment. This is true, especially when we recognize that these two genitives of the earth and of heaven are surely genitives of quality and not genitives of source. They do not denote origin. They denote atmosphere or quality or realm. This means that the earthly quality of Adam as created, listen, is a microcosmic representation of a broader atmosphere or environment. Adam is earthly, which is representative of a broader and more basic earthly environment or eon. And that will keep us from running afoul. Christ of heaven does not mean he has descended out of heaven. It means in the logic of 1 Corinthians 15 that he has been raised up and identified with a heavenly order. What in Colossians 3.1, Paul says, is above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What Colossians 1.16 identifies as the invisible heavens, the three-tiered universe we saw put up from someone who actually knows how to use PowerPoint this morning. Very useful. So, Paul's interest here is in the mode of existence that Adam and Christ possess. Adam is created, Jesus Christ as raised. And one way to try to summarize and boil this down into a basic point is simply this. Paul argues that Adam and Christ are representative figures who embody what they represent. They embody what they represent. Adam embodies the order he represents. Christ embodies the order that he represents. Now, it's in that context, especially here in verse uh, 48 and 49, that I want you to notice Paul's focus shifting. What has been the controlling orientation in 42 through 44a? The one resurrection body found in Christ compared to the dead body of believers. 
What has been the focal comparison from 44b through 47? The two representative figures. Adam, natural body, Christ, spiritual body. Adam of the earth, Christ of heaven. The focus has been on those unique features in redemptive history, in covenant history. But in verse 48 through 49, Paul now shows that there is an organic connection between Adam and those who are of him and Christ and those who are of him. For those of you who like your dogmatic categories, I do. This is now a shift away from the history of salvation, the Historia Salutis, and a trending now into the Ordo Salutis, the application of redemption, where the qualities associated with the one are now associated with others. Look at this. As was the man of the earth, so also those of the earthly. As is the man of heaven, so also those who are heavenly. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, what is Paul saying here? I can elaborate it very simply by an appeal to verses 20 through 23 of this same chapter. This is Paul's theology of Christ's resurrection as aparte, as first fruits. When Christ rises as the first fruits, he rises as the first of the one great resurrection harvest at the end of the age. He is the first among many. The closest way to clarify this in Paul's theology is Romans 8:29. He is the firstborn among many brothers. He is the first to rise with bodily, um, with a spiritual body transformed by the spirit and glory and power and his resurrection. Listen, renders necessary and certain the future bodily resurrection of his church. That's the logic of Christ as first fruits. First Christ. And then at his return, those who have fallen asleep. So that when you think of the resurrection, don't think of it only along the evidential lines that it confirms his messianic identity and his eternal identity as the son of God. It does. But you should see in his resurrection the dawning of your own. His resurrection is organically related to your resurrection in him. And the view here is on the future eschatological resurrection of the body. You're also raised with him by faith. Colossians 2.12, a different lecture. Verses 48 through 49 elaborate and expand upon this basic truth of Christ as first fruits of the resurrection harvest. And the point that I want to note here in brief is the transfer of the qualities or the association of the qualities from the one to the many. As was the man of the earth, so also those who are earthly. As is the man from heaven, so also those who are heavenly. See, Adam is not only a representative of an order 
He is a representative of others who share in his basic mode of existence. Likewise, Christ is not only a representative of an order, but a representative of others who will share his basic mode of existence qualified as heavenly. Being heavenly coincides here with a future resurrection by which the heavenly will bear the image of the heavenly man. Bear the image of the heavenly man. Just as we have borne the image of the earthly, so we will bear the image of the heavenly. For those of you who do know Greek, there is a textual variant that doesn't have a future verb. And it's not plausible to take it as a realized category. If you want to do Q&A on that, we can do it. But your translation, the one you're looking at, is right. So, textual variance, not, not very plausible. But what does this mean? The image of God in which Adam and Eve were created will be brought to its eschatological completion and consummation when believers are raised to bear the image of the resurrected Christ. The knowledge, righteousness, holiness, and dominion that Adam and Eve had as image bearers, that's what is meant or implied when you bear the image of the earthly man. But that image will be brought to its eschatological terminal point, its point of glorification when believers are raised and bear the image of the heavenly man. What does it mean in brief? could do an entire lecture just on this. Among other things, believers united to Christ in effectual calling by a spirit-wrought faith will be raised up bodily Confirmed in righteousness by sight, not merely faith. Perfected in holiness. Clothed in imperishable glory and power. And will enter into a holy realm that is described in Scripture, 2 Peter 3 and Revelation 21 and 22, as a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Freed forever from the power and tyranny of the serpent of Satan and his host. As was with Christ the first fruits, so with those raised in him and with him. And we get a sense of what Paul has in view that I'm not dropping theological categories in an airlift way down onto the text, that becomes clear at least in light of verses 50 through 54. Very brief observation. What will it look like to bear the image of the heavenly man in bodily resurrection? Well, Paul says that is a mysterion. That is a mystery. And what is it? Here's the beautiful thing about a mystery for Paul. It's not a secret. It's revealed. The mystery is the content of his apostolic gospel. So it's a revealed mystery. And what is it? It's that we will all be changed. 51. The dead will be raised imperishable. 
and the mortal will put on immortality. At that point, the dead will not sleep, but will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. The last trumpet when the dead rise in Christ as the rest of the one great resurrection harvest is entered into eschatological glory in the one who entered before them. Critical. Absolutely critical to this argument is that Adam be the first image-bearing human created from the dust of the ground and placed in the context that Paul develops. Paul is explicit that Adam's created bodily mode of existence provides the historical prototype for the resurrection body. He correlates them inexorably with one another. To deny Adam's created bodily mode of existence as the image of God is to deny the historical reality in back of the resurrection body. The condition for the possibility of the spiritual body is the antecedent existence of the natural body, equally real. Equally historical. Let me try to put it in this way. To deny the constitutive animating activity of the spirit in the creation and image endowment of the first Adam. 45, 47, 48, 49 is to deny the condition for the possibility of the constitutive animating activity of the spirit in the resurrection and image endowment of the last Adam. What do you have? Well, you have this constitutive animating activity of the spirit forming Adam in the image of God. Genesis 2.7. You have as the counterbalance to that, this animating spiritual activity, raising Christ up and clothing him in his humanity with the glorified image that was present in Adam in its pre-fall state. In each instance, the spirit's animating and image endowing activity has historical reference. T.S. Reference in view. Adam formed from the dust, Christ vivified and raised from the dead. Built into this confession of the historical Adam is the animating, constitutive agency of the spirit, creating a man from the dust that he might pass and with him, humanity in him to glory. That is the concern of Paul's theology. The natural body and image endowment of the first Adam is presented with the same degree of realism as both the dead body of the believer and the spiritual body of Christ. Paul would not classify Adam's mode of existence as some kind of primordial, questionable category of history that's ethereal and elusive. It is as real and concrete and basic 
to what God is doing in redemptive history as the body and the hands that the disciples touched when Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. What God has joined, let no philosopher or biblical biblical scholar or theologian attempt to separate. A denial of the historical Adam has to be sought on grounds that will put a person in direct conflict with the inspired apostle who speaks, remember, not with the authority of man, but of God himself, of the ascended Christ, who has taught his gospel by Christ. Put in terms of our initial appeal to the classically reformed categories contained in Westminster Confession 9. One through five. A denial of the existence of Adam as the first human created from the dust of the ground in the image of God. As a representative of all humanity in him bound for the estate of glory. That is demanded by any who would deny Paul's teaching. If you deny that basic confessional structure, innocency, sin and misery, grace and glory. You must deny the exegetical foundations from which it derives. And as far as I can see, and I remain always open to be challenged on every single point that I ever make, but as far as I can see, 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 49 is an irrefutable foundational structure that underlies our classically reformed theology of the fourfold state and is something that is historically primitive, historically foundational to the gospel that Paul proclaimed. Now, in the next lecture, I will focus on a contemporary text in Romans, uh, on a complementary text, rather, in Romans 5, 12 through 19, that tethers sin, death and condemnation to the first Adam. And then I will focus after brief exegesis. Fairly brief. I will focus just a bit on a contemporary line of thought that seeks to affirm sin and death while self-consciously denying the historical Adam as presented by Paul in the New Testament. And the thing that will surprise some of us is this is done by a scholar and scholars like him who claim to be evangelical and wanting to uphold the truth of the gospel as it is revealed in terms of this basic plot line from the first man, Adam, who became a living being, and the last Adam, who became life-giving spirit. And so we'll open up now for questions and answers. So.